Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast interview, I'll be interviewing Dr. Roger Peng. Roger is an associate professor of biostatistics at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is also a co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Data Science Specialization on Coursera, which has enrolled over 1.5 million students, and he's a co-founder of the popular Simply Statistics blog, where he writes about statistics for the general public. Roger's research interests include the study of air pollution and health risk assessment and statistical methods for environmental data. He is also a leader in the area of methods and standards for reproducible research and is the reproducible research editor for the journal Biostatistics. In addition to being the author of more than a dozen software packages implementing statistical methods for environmental studies, he has also given workshops, tutorials, and short courses in statistical computing and data analysis. Roger recently published his first LeanPub book, Our Programming for Data Science, which uses material developed as part of the Johns Hopkins Data Science Specialization. The book is available for free with a suggested price of $15 and already has over 17,000 readers. The book can also be bought along with lecture videos and data sets. In this interview, we're going to talk about Roger's professional interests, his book, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Roger, um, for sitting through that introduction and for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I just want to warn you that I, my building is right next to the hospital here, so you may hear the occasional siren. Oh, that's okay. We'll just give some background color. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start with a couple of um, biographical questions. Um, can you tell us how you first became interested in statistics generally and in biostatistics specifically? Uh, that's a great question. It's kind of a weird path that I took. Uh, you know, so I, t I studied math in college. And I, think, and I think that's how a lot of people get involved in statistics initially. Uh, and I took uh, part of my kind of math requirements um, required that I take a, a course in statistics. So I took a I think it was probability theory uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, so I kind of kept going down that road and taking more and more statistics classes and uh, ended up being kind of like a minor uh, in that area. And so, um, uh, and so I thought about, uh, yeah, so I just kind of naturally thought about applying to graduate school. Uh, you know, my, my brother had gone to graduate school, my older brother had gone to graduate school, so I just figured uh, that was kind of a, a, the right thing to do. Um, and it was kind of funny because I, so I graduated from college in 1999 and uh, you know, it basically it was a dot-com craziness. Uh, and everyone was just going to these software companies, and uh, and uh, here I was, you know, <laughs> going to apply to graduate school. So um, uh, I kind of bucked the trend there. So um, anyway, so I, I applied to graduate school in statistics because I thought, you know, that's what I wanted to do. It seemed like a, a fun field. Um, and so I went to UCLA um, and got my PhD there. And uh, and I originally kind of thought uh, I didn't really do. There was no bio in my work there. There was no. I was not. I didn't learn any biostatistics per se. Uh, I wasn't really working in biomedical sciences, um, and so I was looking for a job. And um, my advisor, his like his college, his grad school roommate, uh, was uh, a professor at Johns Hopkins, and I, I had no intention of really applying there because I you know didn't really think I was doing biostatistics. And then I think, and so he, but he said, you know, my you know my old roommate's there. He says he really loves the place, so you should check it out. So I you know I <laughs> applied and I interviewed. And uh, yeah, I really like the people there. And I thought, okay, well, even though I don't really, I mean, I'm not like <laughs> specialized in this topic area. It seems like a great environment, a great institution. So I just, so I got the job here and I came. So um, it was kind of a weird, it was kind of weird. It was just, you know, I think um, it, 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 because um, it wasn't necessarily like directly what my training was, but I think, um, well, I don't know, I think for me, like a lot of, a lot of decisions I make in terms of what to do or where to go are based on kind of like what people are involved and if there's like good people involved and I like being with them, then that's kind of like the most, that's the bottom line 
uh, for me. It's interesting yeah, you bring up the startup world as well. I mean, that's how, you know, a lot of decisions are, are made, you know, in, in startup land as well, right? It's like, you know, well, we've got lots of options. We've got lots of ideas, but like, you know, what, what startup should we work with? Well, the, the people that you're going to be involved with are often, are often a driving factor there. Yeah, because I think, you know, every, things always change and uh, people need to be able to, to kind of deal with it. And you got to make sure that you're with the right people you know, when things go wrong or whatever, you know, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I have a specific question about the, the work that you're doing now. Um, it's yeah. on, on your website that you're working on environmental biostatistics and how air pollution and climate change affect human health. Um, can you tell, just give us a little bit of information about how you would use statistics to study, to study those effects? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, there's a couple of areas. What my biggest area is probably the looking at outdoor air pollution uh, and population health. So, and this is um, this work kind of uh, is directly informs kind of like national level type regulation uh, on air pollution uh, standards. And so what we do is we look at you know the, the, so in the U.S. the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency uh, monitors air pollution all across the country in all the major cities. And the idea is that we want to see how the levels of air pollution that are changing in the air are related to kind of different population health metrics. So we might say, you know, look at the number of people who have been hospitalized for a heart attack on a given day, uh, or the number of people who uh, were, you know, hospitalized for respiratory infection, something that we, can, that we think is linked to air pollution exposure. And so we have these very long time series of daily levels of pollutants. Uh, and then, you know, from day to day, things go up and down. And so you would imagine that if pollution is linked to health, that as pollution is going up and down, um, the various health metrics are also should be going up and down, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is that kind of like uh, teasing out that signal is, is really hard because it's um, it's not the kind of signal that you know, air pollution is not the kind of thing that knocks you over as soon as you walk outside, right? That's well, at least right. not not in the United States, right? <laughs> and so there are all kinds of other competing factors that are gonna there are all, that are a risk for your, you know for your health. And so, so kind of teasing out the signal that air, that, that air pollution contributes to kind of either morbidity or mortality risk yeah, is what is really where kind of statistical models are needed. Um, you know, back in the old days, you know, like in the 40s and the 50s where pollution was just out of control, uh, you didn't need fancy statistical models to see that it was affecting people's health. You just had to like go out in the street and see people, right. you know, <laughs> you know uh, having problems. But now that pollution levels are lower, um, uh, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, um, it's not so obvious, but there, to, to kind of see those kinds of problems. But nevertheless, there are we still do see uh, pretty strong associations between kind of changes in pollution levels uh, and, uh, and and various health outcomes. I, I imagine but, it must be even more complex when you factor in climate change. Yeah. So, well, climate change is um, is a, is kind of an, an, an aspect that you know that affects how we think about things in the kind of the longer term, right? So there are the different timescales at which you can think about uh, air, you know air pollution problems. And um, and one of them is kind of like the day to day level, uh, but another one is kind of like how things change over time and are things improving as air pollution levels go down. Um, and so, and climate change um, ha can affect um, that in a variety of ways. One in, in kind of affecting the weather, uh, which has an interaction with kind of air pollution levels. And the other is that you know if we, as we implement policies to deal with climate change, um, that has a direct effect on how we on air pollution levels too. And so, so for example, if we want to deal with climate change by like shutting down some, uh, you know, some power plants, then that will also affect kind of the direct levels of pollution. So there's lots of interactions between the, the kind of the different things there. And uh, so, and so, and so there is some. So statistical modeling is useful for kind of integrating all the different kinds of data uh, that you come across, whether it's climate data or air pollution data or health data. Um, and it's also useful for 
uh, for teasing out these kind of sometimes these very these small signals that we have to detect. And, and do you work? Are you working with like a national data set, or do you focus on a specific region, or say urban versus rural, or or something like that? Right. So uh, my area, uh, my work focuses on um, kind of national level studies. And so we, we get data uh, on the pollution side. We get data from the entire you know, US EPA network, monitoring network. Um, and then we get also we get health data from, from really large kind of uh, administrative claims databases like Medicare uh, and Medicaid, which are these large kind of ins uh, you know, uh, national insurance programs. Um, so we can look at insurance records and see, OK, every time someone was hospitalized, we can kind of mark that up and then um, and see if it's related to changes in air pollution levels from the monitoring network. So Okay, okay that's really interesting. Um, you know, yeah. This reminds me of, um, there have been stories in the media in the last you know, year or so about Paris shutting, shutting down you know, half, the, half the cars on the streets, for example. Yeah. Like you can only drive a car if, you're, if, you're last, if your license plate ends right. in like, you know, a, an even number or an odd number on a day to cut down on car pollution. And I'm interested in, because you were saying you know, pollution levels have gone down generally in the States in the last couple of decades, I imagine. Do you see... So you don't see any problem like that emerging in an American city in the next 10 or 15 years? Any problem like what? Sorry. Like, sorry, like there is in Paris. Um, well, I think um, th there are some cities that, I mean, I think that if you look across the nation, things have gotten much better in, over the last few decades. But there are still cities that have pretty big, have very high levels in, in, of pollution and still have problems. Um, and so, for example, like if you look at the, um, in, I think it was in 1996, you know, the Atlanta Olympics, uh, Summer Olympics, they implemented a scheme kind of like that. Um, in terms of traffic, uh, just traffic control, um, and so, uh, and just because I think just because they, you know, they envision lots of people coming and things like that, um, but I think there are cities that are still kind of beyond the like you know the regulations here in the United States that need to improve their levels, and so it's not a although conditions are generally much better, it's not like a solved problem yet. Okay. 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 Yeah. Thanks. Um, just switching switching gears slightly, um, and just talking about like data science more generally. I I, I looked at the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab website, and um, I'm just going to read a quote and ask you to ask you to explain a little bit about what it's what it's talking about, but it, I know you probably didn't write it, but um, it says, um, the revolution in measurement and the resulting deluge of data has made data science the most important field of study in the world today. So can you explain a little bit about, about why data science is so important generally, just for people who might not be familiar with it? Sure, yeah. So I, I think, you know, if you look around, if you just look around yourself, <laughs> basically, uh, there are everything that you look at is essentially generating data. And if it's not generating data itself, we have some device that can collect data from it. Um, and I think so everywhere you go uh, in, in, your, in the world and, and in your life today, there, there is information that's being generated and kind of spewn out into the world. And, um, and a lot of it we can't collect because just there's too much. But, but, but we can collect more and more of it. Uh, as time goes on because of because of kind of improvements in technology and in computing power. And I think back in, you know, if you looked back many, many years, let's say, you know, 100 years, um, the, the, the biggest issue was collecting the data, uh, you know, because it was very expensive and uh, it was, and you had to be very careful not to waste a lot of resources uh, collecting data. And then once you got the data, assuming you did it right, the analysis was pretty straightforward because, you, you know, there's maybe 10 data points or whatever. Uh, but the, now we have the kind of reverse situation where the collection of the data is very routine. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's almost too routine sometimes. <laughs> I mean, the data is just happening. It's, it's being collected whether we like it or not. You look at something like server web logs. The data is just being collected. It just is. Um, and so... Um, and so, and so now the analysis actually has become much more complicated and much more um, 
um, difficult to do because uh, because of the volume and the complexity and the heterogeneity of all the data that's just being generated uh, automatically. And so the, the the kind of the the difficulties and the skills that are required uh, have really flipped. Um, whereas before you had to be really careful about like optimizing your study design and and kind of making sure that you're not wasting things. I mean, you still have to worry about that. Um, but now the, the skills for a data analysis are really kind of necessary. And there are a lot of fields uh, where that didn't emphasize the data analysis part uh, and are realizing now, oh, actually, we really got to train people in this area, whereas in the past we did not have to. So that's what I say that I think data science is, in, in many ways, it's taking over uh, every area of either science or or, or, or business or whatever, because everywhere there's data, and um, and so the skills to analyze those that those data are just becoming increasingly uh, valuable. I, I imagine that the the presence of this data, as well as unlocking area, new areas of study, right? So, for example, in the past, people weren't all wearing Fitbits and clocking their clocking their steps every day and stuff like that. So that now now that things are being tracked that weren't being tracked before, it must open up new areas for for study. Yeah, and, and even more base. Yeah, there's, so there's new areas of study being created. Things like wearable computing that didn't exist a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think. Uh, but also, there's just like d- there's just new kinds of data that we've never seen before, mm-hmm. uh, and so we don't even know how to characterize. So if you have an accelerometer on that you're wearing, how do we how do we even get any information from that data? How do we know what you're doing from the accelerometer? So I think that's mm-hmm. where statisticians like me and many other people that I work with, uh, that's where we earn our money because we have to figure out ways to look at that data, to characterize it, to understand kind of what's happening. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure if my next question is related to that, but um, uh, you, you, do, you do say on your website that you have a special interest in reproducible research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what reproducible research means and why it's so important to you and to your, to your field. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, reproducible research is, um, it's kind of like the scientific analog of uh, like open source software. Um, the, so the basic idea is that you, for your for work to be reproducible, and there's a lot of confusion sometimes about the terminology. Um, the idea is that you want the, you know, the kind of your data and your software code uh, to be available so that, to others to look at. And and so uh, the idea is that I can take your data and I can take the software that you use to analyze it, and I can kind of reproduce the numbers that you've published or this or the graph or the you know, the plots that you made or whatever it is that the result was. And so it's not that I'm going to redo your whole study. It's just, I'm just going to take your data and kind of produce what you produced. And um, and the and the funny thing is that like this was not really not that important in a way many many years ago because the the, the data it was so small there was really no, there was no software right there was nothing to provide right if you really want to know whether an experiment was valid or not you would just do it again right you do it yourself right because um, but now the problem is a lot of studies are so big and they involve such large quantities of data that. The collection of, like I said before, the collection of the data is not really the uh, the, the the challenging part. It's really the, the analysis and how they how they analyze the data to 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 come to a conclusion about you know nature or whatever it is they're studying. Um, that's really where all the difficulty is. And so we really need to know many. But the, and the problem is that the you know the publishing um, infrastructure is not really designed to kind of. Unfor- to let people know what those details are. So the kind of bottom line way to know what those details are is to see the code, to see the data. And so, uh, but again, because of the kind of, a lot of this happened very quickly, um, there isn't the kind of infrastructure there for, uh, for allowing, giving people access to data, giving people access to software code. And so the, a lot of that kind of has to be built. So I, I was kind of interested early on in kind of getting this idea across to people 
and convincing them that it had to happen in order for kind of science to move forward. It's really interesting. I, mean, I, I, um, I know that in sort of the, the popular science media, there have been articles over the last year or so about um, how the interests of, of scientists aren't necessarily aligned with actually reproducing research just in general, right? Because you get you get the headline or you get the promotion or you get you know the patent or something like that for actually doing the original research. And so often articles will be published and I, I guess there's some very low, I'm, I'm speaking about the sciences very generally, there's often a very low proportion of, of experiments that are actually, or studies that are actually reproduced at all. Um, yeah, is yeah. That, is that, I mean, is that true in your, in, your, in your specialty as well, that there isn't really much of an incentive, there's less of an incentive to just work on reproducing someone's results than there are to, you know, do your own original work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a general phenomenon, and it's a it's a general kind of element aspect of our of culture. You know, I think the emphasis is on discovery, right. um, and I think um, the analyzing a you know a, a published data set and kind of coming to the same result is um, not is not what might be considered as discovery, right? right? On the other hand, analyzing someone else's data set and finding out that something was wrong, well, that is discovery, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so some people are, are interested in doing that. Um, but, uh, but in general, I think, yeah, so just reproducing another finding is difficult to, is sometimes difficult to say, for example, get funding for, okay. um, or to get published in a high profile journal. Um, okay. but, but, but however, I think the, the issue, when it comes to something that's really high impact, um, something that's really, that's, you know, that's really interesting to the, to that subfield, to that field, um, it will get reproduced. And um, be, because people, if, if it's something that's really surprising or something that could have an impact on the entire field, people are going to want to know whether it's true or not. Oh, and the only way you determine whether it's true or not is to do is to have multiple people do the same experiment independently, okay. right? And so, if but if no one cares about it, then it's kind of hard to just to justify reproducing it. And you know, a lot of scientific there's a lot of scientific publications out there, uh, and it's it's it's. And it's not like every single one of them is going to be reproduced. It's just not physically possible. Right. Okay. But there, but if you look at there are many examples in the recent kind of popular press of like you know where, of like either of things that were faked or things that were, didn't reproduce, or whatever. And you realize that that's kind of how the system is supposed to work. So there's this kind of a, this example with stem cells, I think, um, and it was a very surprising result, right? So what happened? Well, immediately 10, 10 labs went to reproduce it, right? And they couldn't do it. None of them could do it. And so they knew it was wrong, right? And so, so there is an interest in reproducing things, uh, but but probably weighted more on the things that are surprising or really exciting. Oh, fair enough. I'm speaking speaking of thanks thanks for that. And speaking of original research, I guess um, I read in the preface to your book um, that your first experience with R, and I'll, I'll ask you a question about that in just a minute, um, involved an analysis of word frequencies in classic texts like Shakespeare and Milton. Yeah. Um, to see if you could identify authorship based on word frequency. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how you got into that and, and what your results were, if you can remember that far back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, to be honest, I can't remember how I got into it. I needed like a senior project in, when I was in college. And, uh, and I think my advisor um, pointed me to this paper. It was, it was published in the 60s uh, about two statisticians who had, um, uh, had analyzed the Federalist Papers um, and because the, there was some controversy over who wrote which of the Federalist Papers, uh, and so they did a little statistical analysis. And so I kind of adopted the same approach that, that they took, which is that um, can you? And the question was, can can you identify certain written works based on the rate at which they use uh, what are called function words, so words that are kind of you don't really think about it, like the, and, he, she. You, you probably don't spend a lot of thought. You know, on like how frequently you're going to use that word, mm-hmm. um, and so the idea is that it kind of reflects your natural kind of personal style. 
And so, and so the analysis basically involves kind of taking these uh, texts that we you know downloaded off of Project Gutenberg, and uh, and count and you know you basically use a Perl script to kind of divide up the text into words and and um, and to count how many how often they used a certain kind of subset of of these function words, um, and then and from that um, I don't know how technical you want to get, but we use basic kind of linear discriminant analysis to see if we could separate one author from another. And um, and it was actually it was pretty straightforward actually it was surprising how kind of how well things authors separated granted we picked a, gr a group of people who were pretty different from each other um, but 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 you could t but you could see that like you know authors that kind of wrote in the same time period they were closer to each other than authors that were writing writing in very different time periods um, and so um, there was a kind of logic to the what we found uh, that it, it did seem that a lot of the uh, the kind of these you know the books or plays from these famous writers were identifiable from these patterns of uh, uh, how frequently they use these kind of uh, you know these meaningless words. And did you have? I was I'm just curious if you had any kind of response from people in in the humanities end of things when you tried. <laughs> well, I, I would be surprised if anyone in the humanities actually read that paper. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was published in a statistics journal, so I'm not sure how often they're pulling that off the shelf. Well, it's it's interesting because there are you know some pretty. Um, you know, big controversies about authorship, specifically around Shakespeare, right? Like, did Shakespeare write write the plays? Yeah. Um, or was it a group of people? Or, or you know, was it a, in fact someone else? Um, and so I would, I would have, I, I was just, yeah, I was just curious when I read about your your experience with that, if if anyone had kind of gone, aha, here's another tool for me to make my argument that it was actually not Shakespeare who wrote the plays or something like that. But. No, I, I had not gotten any uh, uh, <laughs> um, emails or, or notifications okay. along those lines. But I do, I mean, I think there, I think you're right. The authorship is always a very kind of interesting topic to people and even not just in literature, but in many, kind of many different areas. It's, uh, and it is interesting to think about kind of how you would characterize numerically um, you know, something like, for example, a piece of music or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and and then be able to separate it, you know, between, for, between two different people or so. But uh, no, so I, I've not been uh, enlisted in that. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's it, it's a fascinating space. I mean, because there are often things about people, like people's biographies, that people will try to pull out of their writings. Like, you know, were they hiding something? Then people will. I mean, I, I know this from you know my experience in the humanities that sometimes people will try to try to tease those things out. But I've, I've it's been quite a while since I've heard of anyone trying to do kind of a, yeah, kind of statistical analysis of, of word use like that. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, I'm just moving on. Um, uh, so yeah, you, uh, just to talk about your book more specifically. Um, so you, you explain in the book that the R programming language um, has become the de facto programming language for data science. Um, can you explain a little bit about what R is and why, why that's happened? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try. Um, okay. so R, you know, R is a language that was kind of started in, um, in the uh, early 90s, um, it was created by two two statisticians from New Zealand, uh, and um, you know originally they wanted to create a statistics a statistical language that was kind of free to them and that could run on kind of very lightweight computers. I think they were using like old Macintoshes, um, and they wanted to use it to teach statistics. That was kind of their goal. Uh, they didn't have any grand uh, aspirations at that time. I think. Um, but, you know, one of the issues, you know, so back then, you know, open source software was still, you know, in some sense controversial, you know, uh, there were really no statistical packages of any quality that were free, uh, or, or open source or, or open source. And so, um, you had to pay a lot of money to, to, um, use these, uh, statistical packages to analyze any data. And, uh, so unless you were at a, a big company or at a university, 
didn't really have access to this kind of stuff. Um, and so R, they kind of put R up on the web in the, in the late, in the kind of later nineties. And, um, and it was really the kind of first, it was one of the first kind of open source, um, uh, statistical packages out there that you could really use to kind of do serious data analysis. Um, and, um, and so I kind of found it just because like, I didn't really want to pay, you know, for the money for all these expensive packages. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I found it and I, and I kind of started using it pretty early on actually. And it's a language, it's, it's a kind of a, in some sense, a clone of an earlier language called S plus. Um, and which caught, was one of the, one of the ones that cost a lot of money. And, um, and so a lot of people, I had a lot of people, including myself had been trained on S plus. And so it was kind of easy to kind of go over to R had the same similar syntax and things like that. Um, but, and so that, and then, so that's kind of how I started using it. And I think very quickly as many open, letting many successful open source projects, I think experience a big community developed around it. Uh, all over the world, in Europe, the U.S., and Latin America, Central America. I mean, a lot of people gathered around it, I think initially because it was free, uh, but also because, and eventually I think because it, off, it, it you know, the community itself becomes a reason to use the package. Um, and so, and, you know, so, and people started building add-on packages uh, that you could load up. And, these, and, and I think, and so it became this thing where all, all of a sudden, at some point there was a point where, like, where, where R was better at some things than, then a lot of the commercial packages, and then that, and I think from then there was kind of no turning back, um, and so I kind of got involved earlier, somewhat early on in the in the kind of history of the of language, and kind of saw it develop and become popular. And now it's actually it's kind of it's hard for me to comprehend sometimes because mm-hmm. how popular it's become because I always thought it would be this kind of niche academic thing, um, but now it's it's in business everywhere. There's companies developed around kind of selling and kind of consulting on R. Uh, there are a lot of data science companies using it for analysis. Um, and I think and its and its capabilities have just really uh, kind of expanded in so many different directions. Um, and so it's um, so now I, I think it's it, 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 one of the things that makes it um, great is that it, you know it has this ability to be ultimately kind of fun, very customizable. Anyone can kind of implement a procedure that they want to use to analyze their data. And it has a very flexible and powerful programming language. And, um, and it has a great community behind it, uh, an enormous community now to kind of as like support and as kind of a way to kind of uh, to learn new things. Oh, great. Yeah, no, thanks. The, um, I, I noticed that uh, speaking about, you know, size of community, I, I noticed um, from the description of your book that your, your Coursera course that it's partially based on. Yeah. It has 1.5 million people who participated in it. Um, that's, well, that, it's, it's, yeah, I'm wondering just if you could explain a little bit about that or if I've got it slightly wrong or. Oh, no. Yeah. So the 1.5 million is not for the uh, it's not for that one course. Sorry. It's yeah. uh, we have a sequence of courses uh, that they call specialization on Coursera. Um, and the sequence has nine courses. Um, and so, and we, that's our data science specialization and it kind of goes, kind of follows the pipeline from like kind of how do you get data to how do you clean it to how do you kind of, uh, analyze it and, how, and then how do you kind of like make data products. So, um, our programming is just one of the nine courses, uh, and, and it runs every month. It's a month long course that runs every month. Uh, and, uh, it typically gets on the order of 40 to 45,000 students enrolled per month. Um, and so, and then the other nine courses, the other eight courses, I should say, are not all quite as popular as that, but so, but we have, you know, across the nine courses, they all run every month. We get about 170,000 people enrolled uh, per month. And so, um, so we do have, yeah, so we have a lot of students, there's a lot of interest obviously in this area. Uh, and the R programming class is one of the more popular ones in the sequence. I'm, I'm curious, are, are, do you know if your students are coming from all around the world or are they, are they sort of concentrated in certain areas or? 
Um, they are coming from all over for sure. Uh, less than half come from the U.S. Okay. Um, and so, uh, but so something like thirty to forty percent come from the U.S. Um, and then and the rest come from all over. There's, we get people from uh, uh, a lot of people from China, uh, Brazil, uh, India, um, uh, the U.K. So it's kind of all over the map. Yeah. That's amazing. Are are they mostly people who are studying in a university somewhere who get who get directed towards one of the nine courses or towards the entire specialization? Um, the people studying in university are a big group, um, but they're not the majority. Uh, a lot of the people that we get are working full time um, and are kind of looking to upgrade their skills um, to kind of learn something new and to maybe look to change careers or train, you know, just change uh, positions in their whatever they're doing. And so um, our, I think our sequence is, pro is, is kind of structured nicely for those kinds of people because it's, uh, it's a month long. It's, it runs very frequently, so you can kind of take it whenever you're ready. Um, and so, um, but it, so it's a lot of kind of working professional type of people. Okay, and and so um, I imagine that it, the courses are taught both are most mostly by video. Is that is that the case or? Yeah, so we have lecture videos, uh, and then we have uh, depending on the nature of the course, we may have quizzes. Uh, we may have like my course has programming assignments that you have to complete, um, and they are graded by kind of unit like in a, like a unit testing framework. Uh, and then uh, some of the courses have projects where you have to um, kind of do a data analysis or or kind of create some software. So yeah, it's we have all kinds of uh, of things like that. And and is is having are having accompanying books is that a conventional thing for a Coursera course or is that something that you and your colleagues have kind of are innovators on? <laughs> that's a good question. I, I, it's hard to say what's conventional for something that's like three years for a phenomenon that's like three years old. Very good point. <laughs> Very good point. But um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I ha I'm not really in touch with a lot. I don't I don't think it's that common unless you are someone who kind of already had a textbook. Um, uh, but uh, we kind of felt like it was a natural thing to do, and uh, I think we would have done it sooner had we learned about LeanPub sooner, <laughs> uh, because we were kind of looking. We kind of couldn't quite find the right mechanism. We didn't want to use a regular publisher, um, and so um, and I think the nature of the courses that we teach, it's you know, it's very low cost. Um, it's hopefully accessible, and you can take it for free. Um, there's free, and so it's it's hopefully accessible to as many people as possible. And so we wanted to layer on uh, something like a textbook. In using a similar kind of model, and, and, the, and the traditional publisher really was not the way to do that. <laughs> no, no, fair, fair enough. Um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, is it? Do you use um, the ability to update your book? You know, quite a bit. Is that something that you do? You know, once every couple weeks, or? Uh, no, well, the well, cause, so I, I initially I did kind of update it a little bit, but the courses are are fairly mature at this point, so they don't change that much. I kind of wanted the book to kind of match the course material. Uh, somewhat closely, not exactly. Okay. Um, but my plan is that as the that the the, the books kind of will evolve, uh, so maybe not on a very frequent basis, but on a on a regular basis, things will be added to the course, things will be added to the book, uh, and so that and so the thing, so things will be kind of updated. And what what were some of the reasons you didn't want to go with a with a sort of you know traditional publisher? Oh well, so I've you know, I've done it before. I have another book through you know a kind of traditional academic publisher, uh, and uh, and the bottom line is that it, it, um, they they don't really hit the right audiences, uh, in my opinion. And also they um, you know you have to char you have to charge a lot of money to kind of make it worth your while. From an author's point of view, you're gonna have to charge a lot of money to make it worth your while, and uh, and so. And it's it's also a very slow process. And so I, I you know, because the, the publisher really doesn't do anything for for you. You have to do all the formatting, all yeah, you know, everything. Oh, really? So, you have to do the formatting as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, for an academic book, I mean, unless I mean, unless you're writing some 
something that's guaranteed to be a bestseller. I mean, you have to do everything. Um, and so they do a little bit of marketing for you. Um, and then they, um, you know, they, they go to the conferences and stand at the, you know, the exhibit booth for you. Um, but, um, but there's not much else that happens and they do a little editing, but it's, so it's a lot of work to go through and, and then to, and they have to sell it at such a high price. You know, the number of people who are going to see this book is very limited from the get go. Uh, and I had that experience already with one of my other books. Um, and so I was, we were, I think I was looking for something different, you know, something that we could price low, but still make it worth our while. And, and I think uh, LeanPub just kind of hit that all those points. And in addition, I think the, auth the authoring process I found really attractive, oh, you know, writing, in, writing in Markdown, um, but still being able to do all the mathematics and the code and everything. It was just the, it hit the right kind of balance, I think. So you were familiar with Markdown before you came before you came to LeanPub? Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, we teach it in one of our courses. Oh, great. <laughs> great. great. Um, so can you actually get, yeah, just talking shop a little bit, can you tell us how you did find out about LeanPub? Was it just kind of, you know, searching around for a publishing yep. platform? Yeah, so I actually heard about it from one of my colleagues. So my colleague, Brian Caffo, who teaches the specialization with me, um, he's one of these guys that he's like, he's like, his brain is kind of connected to the internet. So uh, he's always aware of kind of what the, what the latest things are. And I think he found it and he started, uh, he actually, he originally, he published a book. He's got his book, it's called Statistical Inference. Um, and, uh, and he just raved about it, raved about it. Oh, great. And so, uh, and so it, to the point where I said, okay, if I don't do this myself, I'm just gonna have to keep listening to him, like talk about it. So, um, so I just kind of signed up and, you know, started the book. And, I, and, and once I kind of got going, I realized, okay, this is just like, it feels like, I don't know, it's kind of feels like you, like LeanPub has, has just kind of, uh, hit every pain point that I had about publishing like simultaneously. I don't know, like maybe you guys are like living in my bedroom or something, but like you figured out like every problem that I had with the publishing process, you just like solved it. And so it was just a weird coincidence, I think. Well, that, that's very nice to say. And, and, and I'm very glad to hear that. I mean, you know, LeanPub's been around um, uh, for, for a couple of years already and customer development has been really important to us. So, so a lot of what you're seeing in LeanPub is other people like you who've been, been, been you know, kicking the tires for quite mm -hmm. some time and giving us feedback and and it, it is one of the one of the pleasures of working with people who are doing something serious and kind of sustained, like writing a book, is that they, they like to give you feedback and they like to write and, then, <laughs> you know, and they like to analyze things. But yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because that's you can sort of see when you're if you find something in LeanPub that you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that was there. But that's exactly what I needed. That's probably because someone just like you was there at some point when it didn't exist and was like, you know, it would be really great. Yeah. Would be if we had this. Um, on that note, actually, I, I would like to, to know: um, is there anything, if, if if there's anything you think that we could do to improve, or if there was anything you saw that was missing, um, if, you know, if you had to kind of, if you could have your one, one, you know, wish feature built for you, what would what would that be? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there probably is something, but I can't. You know, it's one of those things where, like, when someone asks you, you don't. Yeah. Really, as soon as you turn to it, but I, I mean, I think, I mean, right now, I think it's 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 really. Um, it's it's quite good for me, and I think um, actually it's quite I think it's quite good for academic publishing. Like I don't know, so if you're writing, if you're a different kind of writer, I, I don't know like how good it is for you, but like for people like me, you're doing like academic publishing. Um, I think it's just it's just the right tool and it's just the right model um, for that kind of style. Um, and I think um, so. I mean, I think I, 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 unfortunately I don't have my wish list in front of me. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. If you if you but, ever think of anything, please get in touch. Yeah. yeah no, but I think no. But I no, I really I'm serious though. When I like, when I say that, like I, you really hit kind of all the major points, uh, and um, and so I think it's it's 
yeah, it's really you got you're at least you know 90% of the way there. So if there's another 10%, you know, we'll figure it out. But oh, um, well, well, thanks very much for that. Actually, I do I do have one just just one more question about yeah. about academic publishing specifically. I mean, it's something it's something we've we've been thinking about for quite some time now, um, and. Um, uh, I was wondering, you know, one of, one of the big questions about academic publishing is that people are often looking, I mean, if they're, if they're, if they're tenure track, but they don't have tenure yet, you know, that's kind of the most important kind of promotion point. And there's often sort of very specific, in, in fact, kind of, kind of um, you know, even, even calculated kind of methods for saying, you know, what the value is of getting a publication in a certain journal or what, what you know, the value is. I don't know how much it, it's like this in the States, but definitely in the UK. Um, they have this thing called the research assessment exercise, which actually kind of quantifies your contribution um, to the field. And, and often this is based on rankings of, of journals or, or, or university presses, for example. And so getting like a monograph published with, you know, the Oxford University Press or something like that is worth more than one from somewhere else. Right. And, and I'm curious about, I mean, what you might think about that um, when it comes to academic publishing in the future, right? Do you think this is something that's going to change where like, it, you know, for example, if you if you published an academic book on LeanPub, it, it, it's hard to know how it would fit in with that ranking where people are sort of looking for quantified professional development. Yeah, I think that's a short-term issue. Um, hmm. So people like today, uh, I think it may have an issue, may have a problem because it's kind of, we're in transition and like eBooks are still kind of new. And um, But I think it's, I think in a couple of years, it, it won't even come up, I think. Um, and I think the, and I think the idea that you're kind of self publishing in a way or whatever, uh, is not such a big deal. Cause I think with books in particular, you know, the publishing process is not like when you're writing a, a, a journal article, which is peer reviewed. Um, you know, with books, you know, there are peer reviewers, but it's a much, you have much more control and it's much more your thing. Um, and so, um, it's much more of a personal statement when you write a book. I think then if you write like a journal article, it's a research article. Um, I think with books, when it comes down to, it's not so much like, oh, is this publisher good or not? It's more about like, well, it's, it's a really big commitment of time, uh, to write a good book. And if you're a junior, uh, professor and you're looking to get promoted, you know, you, you're going to think, oh, what's the trade off here? I, I could spend this amount of time to write this book, or I could spend the same amount of time to write uh, two research articles. You know, because there's a huge commitment of time and, you know, that trade off, I got to do one or the other. I can't do both. And I think one thing that's nice about something like LeanPub uh, and a lot of these other kind of tools out there is that, you know, it really decreases the amount of time that's not spent just directly producing content, you know. And I think um, the, the amount of time that because the time is the, you know, is the one resource that is the most important resource. And if you can minimize the amount of time that's doing things that are really not that important, um, uh, like emailing back and forth with the publisher or whatever, you know, and I just really, um, uh, and just focusing on, you know, uh, writing content and kind of writing your book. And, and again, that's like one of the beauties of Markdown, right? It's just focused on writing the content. Uh, I think that is a major plus. And that's kind of what I tell people now too. It's like, you know, the, the tools are developed such that you don't have to waste time figuring out like how to you know, format things correctly or how to get things, how to produce things. You just, you just focus on writing. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that I would worry about most. So, you know, if I, you know, in terms of like the time trade off for writing a book versus not writing a book, I think it's not so much an issue of like, Oh, should I go with this publisher or that publisher? Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank, thanks very much for that. Um, I really appreciate, appreciate you giving us your time, your time today. Um, uh, so yeah, unless unless you have any questions for me, I'd just like to say thanks for um, being on the Lean Publishing podcast and for being a Lean Pub author.
Well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really enjoying it. Thanks.